Good morning. Welcome back to National Capital Bible Church. Before we begin, I'd like to open in prayer for our pastor. Uh, right now, he is having some elevated high blood pressure. So if you would join me, I'd like to lift him up in prayer at the moment. Father, thank you for this opportunity to approach the throne of grace. At the moment, we'd like to lift up Pastor Dan to you. We understand that he has elevated blood pressure, and we know that that's not good for his condition. Father, would you intervene and stabilize him, lower his blood pressure so that he can enjoy the rest of the day with us? And we ask this in Christ's matchless name. Amen. So before we look into the message and before we sing songs, let's pause for a moment of silence for spiritual preparation using 1 John 1.9. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to approach the throne of grace using 1 John 1.9. We know that our prayers are not heard unless we are clear with Thee. We are grateful for this opportunity uh, through our union with Christ to be able to understand Your Word and to have this awesome relationship with Thee. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Call to worship is taken from Psalms 103. Psalms 103. We'll go up to about verse 20. Psalms 103. Might as well just take it to 22. That's pretty much all of it. Psalms 103. We'll look at the entire chapter. And in the back of your mind, I'd like you to ask yourselves... Where is the essence of God found in this chapter? The essence of God. In fact, before we start, what are the three O's that relate or pertain to his essence? The first one, I'll give you a hint. Omniscience. Very good. What's the second one? Omnipresence. What's the third one? Omnipotence. Very good. So as we read this, all three are found in this chapter. The essence of God. So I'm going to be reading using the New King James Version. Psalms 103 says the following. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, And forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Who satisfies your mouth with good things. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord execute righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses 
He acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Verse 9. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children. To such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments, to do them. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels who excel in strength, who do his word. Heeding the voice of his word, bless the Lord, all you his hosts. You ministers of his, who do his pleasure, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So now with your Bibles open, still on 103, I'd like to highlight the three O's. Omni, omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. So first, his omniscience, verses 14 to 16. You can find his omniscience. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That shows his omniscience. He knows us, for he knows our frame. Verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. That's 14 and 15. Verse 16 says, For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. So these verses acknowledge God's understanding of human frailty and mortality, indicating his omniscience in knowing the limitation of his creation. That's 14, 15, and 16. His omniscience, or his omnipresence, can be found in verse, verses 2 through 4, which says, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Verse 3. Who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. Verse 4. Who redeems your life from destruction. Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. These verses highlight the benefits of God's presence. 
and actions, demonstrating his omnipresence in providing forgiveness, healing, redemption, love, mercy. And then we also have the other O, which is omnipotence, found in 5, 19 through 20. Verse 5 says, Who satisfies your mouth with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the angels. Verse 19 says, The Lord has established His throne in heaven, and His kingdom rules over all. And then verse 20 Bless the Lord, you his angels, who excel in strength, who do his word, heeding the voice of his word. These verses showcase God's power and authority to satisfy, renew, and establish his throne and rule over all creation, illustrating his omnipotence. Anthropopathism, correct. Mm -hmm. Very good. Deep word. We'll be covering that in future classes. And the other one is an anthropomorphism. All right. We're going to go back one last time on Acts 9. Not that we're going to read it. I just want to review some of the things that I pointed out last week regarding his call. So I'm going to sweep through the highlights, the doctrinal observations from Acts 9, 1 through 19. I think I went rather quickly. <clears throat> and this, but before we go there, I'd like to read and summarize basically what had happened in Acts 9, 1 through about 22. And then we're going to hit on the doctrinal observations. So by way of review, you'll recall that Saul encountered a light from heaven while traveling to Damascus. We find that in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9. So he encountered a light from heaven while traveling. And then he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That's found in verse 4. Anybody remember what happened after that? As soon as he saw the light, he was blinded, right? He was blinded by the light and he was led where? Into Damascus. We find that in verse 8. And who was instructed by a vision to go to Saul? Ananias. Ananias was instructed. He was called a certain disciple. Apparently, he was a believer. We also find, we read, we read in verse 17 that Saul's sight was restored and he was filled with the Holy Spirit after Ananias laid hands on Saul. His sight was restored, basically. In verse 20, we also saw that Saul immediately began preaching. Remember that in verse 20? And in verse 21, those who heard Saul were amazed, knowing that he had previously persecuted Christians. They were surprised. Isn't this the guy that used to harass believers? 
He had a radical change. So, out of verses 1 through about 21, here's what we have as far as observations. Number one, there's divine intervention. We find that in verses 3 to 4. Divine intervention. We also see in verses 15 and 16, his unconditional grace. God's unconditional grace. In verse verse 6, we see his calling and commission. So I'm showing you what I do when I go through a passage. I'm wanting, I'm seeing what's there. What can we conclude based on the verse or the passage itself? So these are the three things that I see from 3, 4, 15, 16, and verse 6. His intervention, his unconditional grace, his calling and commission, and number four, his divine orchestration through human agency. I inserted this one here. This is a new one. Because when we go back and look at 10 through 14, he uses someone, that certain disciple, a human agency. So just know that sometimes God will use individuals in your own life. You may or may not know the person, but they may know you. Remember what the certain disciple said about Saul? What did he say? Lord, isn't this the guy? We, I know of this guy. He persecuted Christians. Saul didn't even know this guy. So here's an outside individual who knew about Saul and was used by God himself. So I call this the divine orchestration through human agency. Sometimes God will call individuals to come see you to intervene, to help you, to assist you, to answer prayer in some kind of divine orchestration. God will sometimes use individuals as seen in 10 through 14. We also see Ananias' obedience, 17 to 18. He had to lay hands on Saul and pray. And what happened after he laid hands on Saul? Anybody remember? Scales fell off his eyes, so now Saul can see. Here's that human intervention. He used this certain disciple. So five goes along with four. Number six. He was called a, well, not called, but we can see a new creation in Christ. And this is huge. Turn to Acts chapter 9. This always, for me, it's, it's, it's important. Because he uses someone who was initially an enemy. I'll just read it for the sake of time. 20 to 22. 
Remember, he was a persecutor of the believers or the Christians. When you get to 20 to 22, he's now a new creation in Christ. Why do I say that? Well, listen to this. Immediately, he preached the, the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So he had this radical transformation. Initially, he was killing Christians. Now, he's he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. And in verse, let me just go back and show you. Verse, let's see here. The radical change. Verse 13. 13 to 20. 13, Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. What man? Saul. How much harm he has done to what? your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. There's a problem here, as if God didn't know. So this certain disciple is telling Christ or this God that, look, this guy Ananias has harmed many of your saints and he has authority When you get to 20, after the transformation, after the scales fell off his eyes, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not the one, is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose? so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. You think that's a new creation in Christ? Oh, yes. An enemy of the cross to radical creation in Christ. So that's six. Number seven, suffering in ministry. We see this in verse 16. God says, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So sometimes with ministry, there's going to come some suffering. We don't want suffering, but that's just the nature of ministry. Ministry always involves individuals. If you have no people, you have no ministry. So there's suffering at times in ministry. And number eight, immediate evangelism, as we saw in verse 20. But I I link that with verse six because six really just jumps out at me. There's a radical transformation as seen in 20 to 22. New man, new creation. Initially an enemy, now a representative. He's in the synagogues preaching. So we can connect really six and six and eight. So now let's go on with Galatians one fifteen. 
Remember, we're talking about um, the call and the uniqueness of Paul. How many books did Paul write? Anybody know? Let's start with this. How many books are in the New Testament? 27. So how many of the 27 did Paul author? Most of them. That's a, that's safe. Eight. We have eight. Any more? Higher, lower? It's higher. Uh, no, we, we don't add Hebrews there because we're not sure. It's unclear. Some say it's Paul, but I don't have a position on that. I'm not sure if 13. Google works really well, huh? Oh, you have it in your note? You counted them. Oh, that's, yeah, there's 13. Paul authored 13. So we need to see and be comfortable with his authority when it comes to the books of the Bible. He wrote 13 books of the New Testament, which includes Romans, First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So there's a number of books that he had authored. And so this is the other section of... Uh, This is the other verse that I wanted us to see, which demonstrates his call. And he, we can see this in Galatians 1.15 because when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through grace. So we see here that he was called or separated while he was still in his mother's womb, called me through his grace. So what you have here is, you have this, uh, the Greek word here, eudokeo, is in the aorist active indicative, third person singular, which basically means God was pleased. But if you look here, I'm going to break it down. The top is the Koine Greek, the bottom half is the Koine English. So Aris tense speaks of a point in time in the past. Active voice speaks of God because God is the subject here. Indicative mood is a statement of fact or reality. Also, I, I like using, when you use the word indicative mood, I, for me to remember it, it indicates something. It indicates something of reality from the standpoint of the author. So this verse in simple terms, is it highlights God's pleasure or approval in the context of his sovereign plan and calling for God. So when you see what it says in Greek, it's pretty specific. It's just not, I'm, ha- I'm God was pleased, he was happy. No, it's very specific. God is involved, it's a statement of fact, and it also shows it's a mood of reality, And it's God's pleasure or approval in the context of his sovereign plan. So when we see it like that, when you put the two together side by side, looking at what it says in the original and in English, it makes better sense. Okay. So now 
based on just what we see here from one word, let me show you what observations we can deduce based on this slide, based on the Greek and the English, okay? Watch this. Understanding of this verse involves considering the context of the entire passage. So we need to consider 11 through 24. The Apostle Paul is defending his apostleship and gospel he preaches. So that is found when you read actually from 1 to about 24, but 11 to 24 gives you the sense and force of why he's doing what he's doing. He says, in my mother's womb, I was called. I was separated. So you've got the following. From Galatians 1.15, you have the divine calling. It emphasizes, this one verse emphasizes that Paul's calling as an apostle was not a result of a human decision or self-appointment, but was initiated by who? God. It speaks of the divine authority behind Paul's ministry. It wasn't just saying, well, you know, I feel like I need to be an apostle today. No, he was able to sense, based on what we've seen in Acts 9, boom, he got hit by a, a, a shining light. And going along with Galatians 1.15, you, you sandwich these two together and you can tell this is not something that he self-appointed himself, okay? So it's the the idea of Paul's calling as an apostle, not as a result of his decision or self-appointment, but was initiated by God. It speaks of the divine authority behind Paul's ministry. Number two, we've got several. Based on Galatians 1.15, we see that it was a predestined purpose. Set me apart before I was what? Born suggests a predestined purpose for the Apostle Paul. It aligns with the idea that God had a specific plan for Paul's life and his ministry even before his birth. Even before his birth. So one, two, three. Calling is by grace. The calling mentioned is attributed to God's grace. This underscores the theme of God's unmerited favor and the absence of human achievement in Paul's appointment as an apostle. Wasn't his doing, it was God's. And he understood that. Number four. We have the contrast to human approval. Paul contrasts his divine calling with any notion of seeking approval or recognition <clears throat> from humans or anybody. The emphasis is on God's approval and the divine origin of his apostleship. That's number four. Number five. Please recall, I'm driving home the point of his apostleship based on one verse, Galatians 1.15. I started off by saying, how many books of the Bible did he write? There are 13 that he authored. So as such, we should recognize his authority and what he says in every book of the Bible in the New Testament as recorded in the New Testament.
as he was led by God the Holy Spirit. So number five, emphasis is on God's initiative. The verse underscores the initiative of God in Paul's calling. It's not something Paul sought on his own. Rather, God took the initiative in setting him apart for a specific purpose. When was he set apart? When it, before his birth. Before his birth. Number six. Uh, in summary. Yes, sir. We can, but I think that's a corporate election or choosing. More of a church in Christ. That's more of a corporate, um, not individual, as seen here. Paul had a specific um, purpose, and that is to reach the Gentiles. right? So now in Ephesians, that's more of a corporate um, call, corporate um, drawing, and it's I think it's focused more on how corporately we're in Christ. That's the focus in Ephesians chapter 1. It it has the same sense because it's all orchestrated by God. But Paul is defending his apostleship here. And he's saying, look, before I was born, I was already set apart in my mother's womb. So he's defending who he is amidst all the challenges that that was coming his way. So there is the same similarity between Ephesians 1 and Galatians, but Paul is defending who he is as an apostle. He said, even before I was born, while I was still in my mother's womb, I was set apart. Whereas in Ephesians 1, he's just saying, we're all called and chosen um, as a church in Christ. So there's a slight difference there, but I would say that there's some... Similarities, for sure. So, in summary, Galatians 1.15 highlights the divine calling, predestined purpose, and the grace of God in appointing Paul as an apostle, emphasizing the divine initiative over human efforts or approval. So, I want us to see that I'm focusing, based on the summary here, I want us to see that it's more of a divine initiative rather than human efforts or approval. So Paul was uniquely different and distinct from anybody else. Only Paul has been told, or we're seeing and read in the New Testament, that he's been set aside for the specific reason of being an apostle. That's huge. That's a major responsibility. And I think because of what Paul has done, we're still seeing the impact Today, along with the 12 disciples, Paul, whose major focus is on the Gentiles, we're still seeing the impact of his work today. How many of you are considered a Gentile? Aside from Debbie and Rick. All of us. Paul's impact is still being felt today. And he was still, the impact is the direct result of God putting him aside, separating him while he was still in his mother's womb. That's huge. And so when you think about this, and when you zoom in on Galatians 1.15, Acts 9, 1-22, through 22, 
you see that Paul is just not a normal individual. God really had his hand on Paul. And God's love spills over to the 21st century. We're still feeling the effects today. Just because one man was committed, he recognized that God set him aside and he said, let's get going. Let's go to work. There's a lot of people that need to be saved. And he went from being an enemy of the cross, then he had a radical transformation, a new creation in Christ. And what did he do after conversion, after being a new creation in Christ? He went out there in the synagogues and started to preach. Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. That impact there spilled over and impacted individuals so that today in National Capital Bible Church and churches globally, they're becoming saved as a result of what Paul has done and what the disciples or the apostles, the apostles have done. I'm not suggesting that only Paul has impacted the world. All the disciples, all the apostles have impacted the world. But when you look at Paul alone, God set him aside for the sole purpose of impacting those who are not even a part of the Jewish culture, the Jewish people, those who are within the family of God, his chosen race. He chose Paul to reach out to those who are Gentiles so that they too can have a phenomenal relationship with God. That's how much God loves you and me. And every person here and online in Zoomland, we should be going forth and advancing the cause of Christ, recognizing just in one person's life, he has obeyed his call to advance the cause of Christ. And as such, as a point of continuity, we should as well. We sometimes think of Matthew 28, go and make disciples. Yes, we should, but... Prior to that, we should be going out there and converting people through the gospel message. We saw in John 6 last week that many disciples followed him, but they peeled off because what? What was the reason why they left? Some did not believe. Why did many of the disciples not follow Christ? That's right. Jesus taught them, unless you eat this flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. And they, they, many of the disciples left because this saying is too hard. Remember that? So what does that say? Sometimes when studying God's word, we want to give up at times and say, oh, it's too hard. No, keep pressing on. Jesus said, these things are spirit. And then we saw that it is possible to leave and throw our hands up as well. Because he goes from many of the disciples followed him no more. And then Jesus said, some of them did not believe. So some of the many did not believe. So as they left, you have to imagine now. There's a, there are many who left because they could not understand his teaching, correct? But the many, let's just say there's a hundred, some of the hundred did not believe. 
So first and foremost, some of the many didn't believe and they left. And then his he turns over to his apostles and he says, do you want to leave also? Inferring that even his elite can leave as well. And I'd pointed out that sometimes we might have that sense too where we just want to give up and say, well, this is too hard or I'm just not into this anymore. Just hang on, steadfast in the words. Stay with it. Don't give up. It is possible for us to want to give up, but don't. So now, let's move on. Let's look at grace. But before we do, give me a general meaning of grace. What does grace mean? Okay, very good. Yeah, I did that on purpose. So it wouldn't distract anybody. Anybody else? All that God is free to do because of the finished work of the cross. And uh, Debbie said unmerited favor. Okay, that's a general understanding. Very good. Anybody else? Anybody else? Not not earned or deserved. Very good. Blessings, right? Not earned or deserved. Blessings from who? God. Bestowed upon believers, right? Okay. So now in Galatians 1.15, we have the word grace. But when it pleased God, this is the same verse that we were looking on, looking at, right? So referring to Paul, but when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. So how do we fit those definitions in here? Unmerited favor, blessings. So when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me through his blessing, called me through his unmerited faith. Okay, so if we import that in here, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So here, Koine Greek, charis, is this is a noun. This is genitive, singular, feminine, first declension. So in English, oops. So we've got the Koine Greek here. So notice charis, it's genitive case, singular number, feminine gender, and first declension. So if we look at what this means in Koine English, instead of charis, it means grace. Genitive case is used to indicate possession, association, or source. Grace is in the genitive case to show that God's action is sourced from where? His grace. Singular, indicating that it refers to one entity or concept, namely grace. Grace is the focus. Feminine, grace belongs to the feminine grammatical gender category. This has nothing to do with biological gender. Neither does it today, it seems like, right? In Greek, nouns are classified as masculine, feminine, or neuter. So it's a grammatical gender or category, if you will. First declension, it follows the pattern of nouns in the first declension. So that's how we look at it in English. I'd like to share something else now. So in other words, looking at Galatians 1.15 with regards to grace... 
we can say that while grace is considered unmerited favor and blessing, the grace mentioned in Galatians 1.15 emphasizes God's specific purposeful action in choosing and calling individuals for his kingdom work, such as Paul. Grace to draw Paul or to select and separate Paul for his apostleship. So you get this in the sense of his sovereignty, his initiative, and divine purpose for Paul and even for believers. So that's why I asked what you think grace means in a general sense, unmerited favor, blessings, and so on. And that's true. But when you look at how grace is framed in Galatians 1.5, it offers and suggests much more, such as his sovereignty is found here, his initiative is found here, his divine purpose for Paul is found here, separation from his mother's womb, all called through God's grace. And then when we consider it, it's genitive, singular, when you put it all together, you realize that there's much more than just unmerited favor, blessings, and so on. Because it incorporates his sovereignty, it incorporates his initiative, and it incorporates his purpose when you tie it all together. Much more than that. Okay? Yes? Apostle? Free will. That's simple. No, free will is going to take a little bit longer to delve into, but free will um, fits in because what we're what we see is when you see his calling and his separate, uh, like in here, his he's separating certain individuals, like uh, Adam and Eve, Paul, um, Moses, Noah, all these people who are set apart and called you'll discover that most of them, when it comes to separating or when God calls or uses specific individuals, that it's not for salvation. It's for work. Keep that in mind, please. When he calls certain people or separates them, like in Paul, it's not for salvation. A lot of times when Paul sets people apart, be it Moses, be it um, Joseph and Mary, it's not for salvation. It's for a specific work. We, we sometimes have a knee-jerk reaction. Oh, free will. How does that fit into in our free will? God chose some to be saved and he's, some to be lost? No, no, no. Free will and sovereignty always works in the big plan in God's picture in his will. When he chooses individuals, it's usually for work, never for salvation. Never for salvation. So I think we'll look into that a little bit more in greater detail because you'll be surprised. When God separates and chooses some, look at what he's choosing them for. It's usually for some kind of work, never for salvation. So therefore, free will fits in quite easily. Free will for salvation is always in place. Sovereignty of God, his calling, is different from man's free will, starting from Genesis 3. 
you never see that God overrides man's will. You see, for example, I think I may have shared this example uh, last year, or the, yeah, last year or the year before. If David and I were speaking on the phone, and let's say I'm in the Philippines, and we're talking on the phone, and for some reason, have you remember the times when phone lines would cross back in the days? Party lines? Well, if we're talking and all of a sudden we hear someone else's conversation, remember those days? Crossing the line. What if David and I are talking and all of a sudden we hear someone's line cross over and say, we hear Everett talk, <coughs> talking and he says, yeah, we're going to bomb this uh, bank. We're going to hit this bank hard and we're going to break in and I think we've got this down. In two minutes, we're going to break into Chase Manhattan Bank over here in Springfield. David and I are listening to this and we say, hey, there's a guy by the name of Everett who's going to hit that bank over in Springfield. It's not, not, not Everett here. Not this Everett. The other Everett. And so, if we heard that conversation, does that make us responsible for the bank that was held up? Are we responsible for this guy by the name of Everett for breaking into the bank? Does, are we held liable for knowing that? I don't think so. Just because we know about it doesn't make us responsible for it. And likewise, God's omniscience doesn't make him responsible for him knowing who's saved or not. Volition is still intact. You follow that? Just because God's omniscience knows all things before, after, before, during, and after doesn't make him responsible for the actions of individuals. That's a part of his essence. So likewise, I'm using David and I as an example because if we know something that is going to happen in the near future, that does not make us responsible for it. No cop in his right mind can hold us responsible for knowing that the bank was going to be busted because, number one, we don't know where it's going to take place. Number two, we didn't, we didn't force this guy by the name of Everett to break into the bank. We just knew about it. It's not our fault. And we can't be held liable for that kind of information. The line's crossed. We don't know where this guy by the name of Everett is found. Could be in the Philippines, could be in Hawaii. So remember, God's omniscience, his being able to know all things, does not mean that he made you responsible for your actions. Nor does it mean that you can't choose on your own. You certainly can. Proof of that is started in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve had the ability to choose right, wrong, obey God or not obey God. And they opted to obey God. They opted not to obey God. They were swayed. Well, Eve was swayed by the serpent and then Adam was swayed by his wife. So now, free will is intact. They chose to disobey. Eve, on the other hand, was deceived, whereas man was, he willfully, right there, he chose to disobey God's decree, God's 
um, command. He had the bigger sin, if we could use that, because Eve was deceived. Only Adam chose volitionally to disobey God. Think about that. That's one of the reasons why. For by one man's sin, all have sinned. Who sinned first? Chronologically, who sinned first? And yet it's man whose name is found in the scripture as being the culprit. For by one man's sin, all have sinned. But chronologically, it was the woman. Why don't we hear that? Because she's a, he's the head. The responsibility fell on him. Right? So, the free will of man is found all the way back in Genesis. So, we can't argue that man never had free will. Man's free will is found in Genesis 3. God's sovereignty is found in Genesis 3. All the way through Genesis 1 to Revelation Sovereignty is clearly found and depicted through all the books of the Bible. So that's a study that we're going to go through, Debbie. We're going to see the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And I'd like us to see how specific books of the Bible show that certain people that we think did not have a choice did have a choice, such as did Mo, did Pharaoh have a choice? God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Is that true? Pharaoh couldn't choose outside of that? Did God reach in and say, you can't decide? Is that what he did when it says he hardened Pharaoh's heart? We're going to see what that actually means. And what prompted Pharaoh to harden his heart? You'll be surprised. So anyways, going back here. So now looking at this once again. So in simple terms, grace or charis in general understanding of grace as unmerited favor, is relevant. The grace mentioned here emphasizes God's specific action, focusing on his sovereignty, his initiative, and divine purpose. He separated Paul from his mother's womb and called me through charis, grace, his grace, God's grace. So now we're going to be able to go through and talk briefly about a few more things. Sanctified in Christ. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. This is 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God which is at Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord both theirs and ours. We're moving now, 1 Corinthians 1-2. So my, what I want us to hear is the phrase, in Jesus Christ or in Christ Jesus, denotes the spiritual union or relationship believers have with Christ. We've talked about this numerous times last year, about the preposition in. It signifies that believers are united with Christ spiritually sharing in his righteousness, benefits, and blessings. Therefore, the phrase sanctified in Christ Jesus conveys the idea that believers are set apart and made holy by virtue of their union with Christ. Remember what I said last week? Where are we today? We're in Christ Jesus. We're in the heavenlies, positionally speaking. Their sanctification, the believer's sanctification, 
is not based on their own merit or efforts, but is a result of their relationship with Christ and his work on their behalf. So now I'd like to talk about salvation or sanctification, doctrine of sanctification. There are going to be eight. Make sure I have it here. There's going to be nine points here. So if you're a writer, here we go. One, first of all, doctrine of sanctification, sanctification emphasizes, I'm looking at reading the blue, that sanctification is a process by which believers grow in holiness and conformity to Christ. But, important but, it is not a condition for salvation. So sanctification is important, but it's never ever a condition for salvation, justification. Okay? There is a sanctification phase two, which we've seen for a year and a half, where it's deliverance from the power of sin. Sanctification defined can be defined like this. It's the ongoing process by which believers are set apart and transformed to become more like Christ in their thoughts, attitudes, and actions. It involves the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, empowering them to live in obedience to what? God's Word. God's Word. Bible doctrine. God's Word. Number two. By the way, I know I'm going rather quickly on this, so I can always send you the information if you're interested. Number two, sanctification as a positional reality. A positional reality, meaning we're positionally sanctified. Believers are positionally sanctified at the moment of salvation, being set apart as holy and belonging to to God. We find this in 1 Corinthians 1-2, which is what we've been studying or looking at right now. To the church of God, which is at where? Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. You see that? So they're positionally sanctified at the moment of salvation. All of us are being set apart as holy and belonging to God. You're either a saint or ain't. Remember that? Vernon McGee used to say that. Love it. You're either a saint or an ain't. Most of us here are saints. Number three. So two is sanctification as a positional reality. That makes three as a progressive process. So while believers are positionally sanctified, they're also called to grow in holiness and conform to the image of Christ throughout their lives. We find this in verse 2, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 as an example. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, are being transformed 
into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Of course, the beholding in a mirror refers to the Word of God. By the Spirit of the Lord. This verse highlights the ongoing transformation that takes place in the lives of believers as they behold the glory of the Lord and are being, and are progressively conform to His image. So please notice, I use the word progressively very carefully there on the bottom. They are behold the glory of the Lord and are progressively over time conform to His image. We're not instantaneously looking like Christ. We're over time. So never get stuck with, oh, I, I'm not changing, I'm, I'm still sinning, I'm still having these issues. We all are. But it's an issue, it's a, it's a lifestyle that takes time. It's progressively where we're conformed to His image. It's a lifelong pursuit, phase two. Remember what I said? When we started First Corinthians, this series here, before that we were focused on phase two salvation. Now we're using First Corinthians as a guide to show us that this is what it looks like to apply phase two in a church context and to draw from the principles as Paul delineates in First Corinthians so that we can therefore follow it. So he tells us to be sanctified. He tells us to not be taking each other into court. He tells us to love our wives. He t- There's a number of things that we're going to see. So it's progressively conform to his image. That's number three. Number four. The role of the Holy Spirit. You can't be sanctified without the Holy Spirit involved. We always start with 1 John 1, 9 so that we could be filled with God, the Holy Spirit. It's possible to lose His filling, but it's impossible to lose His, his indwelling. Possible to lose the filling, never possible to lose His indwelling. One is permanent, one vacillates. Number four, the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit plays a key role or a vital role in the process of sanctification, empowering believers to live in obedience to God's word and producing the fruit of the spirit in their lives as seen in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. You find the words, but the fruit of the spirit, love, joys, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, and so on. Galatians 5. So that's the result of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the believers. That's the role. That's point number four. We've got several more. Number five. The assurance of salvation falls in the category of sanctification. Sanctification is not a condition for salvation, but rather a result of salvation. So believers can and should have assurance of their salvation based on the finished work of Christ and their faith in Him, not in their own efforts or level of sanctification, or another word is their level of commitment. We find this in verse 2, 8 through 9, that buttresses what I just said in on the top two points there in number 5. For by grace 
have you been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should brag, lest anyone should boast. So in simple terms, it's all by grace, not through efforts, not through works, so that nobody can boast. It's not about you, it's not about me, it's about God. It's all by His grace, it's a gift, never by our works. So assurance of salvation should be ours as we focus in on Him and recognize what the Scripture has to say about our salvation as found in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. So point number six, the role of grace. How does that fit in? Believers are called to rely on God's grace for sanctification, recognizing that it is His empowering presence that empowers or enables them to live a holy life. You can't live a holy life on your own strength. Otherwise, He would never have sent the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, He would never treat us with grace because we can do it in our own strength. We find this in 2 Corinthians 12.9. He said to me, Paul speaking, my grace is sufficient or enough for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities, in my issues, in my challenges, my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This verse emphasizes that it is through God's grace and strength that believers are able to overcome their weaknesses and grow in sanctification. So Paul is saying in simple terms, I would rather be weak because then I experience his grace which will then allow me to be empowered. Paul said, God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength, whose strength? God's strength is perfect in what? In weakness. Where's the weakness coming from? Us. We switch. We take God's grace, which is made perfect in our weakness. So we switch off. We give him our weakness. He gives us his grace. And God says, My grace is sufficient for you. Hang in there. My strength is made perfect in you, your weakness. And Paul says, therefore, most gladly, I'll rather boast in my weaknesses. I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's where grace comes in, the sufficiency of grace. Because we sometimes say, "Ah, I don't want to go through this. It's too much. I'm tired of this. Well, if we stop and recognize that this is one way that we can experience this grace that Paul is speaking of here, then we can then we can look at the the challenges of life and say, well, isn't this what Paul was complaining about? This difficulty, this challenges that Paul had, could this be something that maybe instead of complaining about it and throwing my hands up at God, maybe I should just Shift gears and slow down and recall the promises of God. And think about what Paul has gone through. Is this why we not study God's word? Isn't this the reason why we study doctrine? Isn't this why we study the truths of God's word? So that when we go through hardship, we can stop and say, Lord, this is all yours. This is your doing. You're supposed to help me. The problems are never God's doing. Sometimes it's our doing. But isn't this the time that we say, okay, Lord, did you not say you're going to handle this for me? Did you not say I can cast my cares upon you because you care? 
Didn't you say that, Lord, in your word? This is why we study, guys. This is why we study his word. So that we can give God what he told us. He's Lord, did you not say that you'll cause all things to work together for good? Did you not say vengeance, vengeance is yours? Did you not say you'll fight my battles? If that's true, I'm not sensing this now. But and as you recall this, as you go into the role of grace, as you recognize the word of God, as you recognize God, the Holy Spirit, all coalescing together, it's really just us that's panicking. And he says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything with prayer, supplication, with with thanksgiving, are we forgetting one of the components to experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding? He's not obligated to supply us with certain things if the condition is not met. Which is why we live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Everything that comes from God's word. If we're not doing that, you're, you can't experience sanctification. Yes, God has positionally placed us aside, but there is a sense where we're responsible for taking action and separating ourselves apart from the world, separating ourselves from the things that will cause us to stumble, separating ourselves that will get in the way of our relationship with God, thus grieving God the Holy Spirit. So there's that sense, okay? This is a part of sanctification. So a few more things and then we'll call it a day. So this verse emphasizes that it is through God's grace and strength that believers are able to overcome their weaknesses and grow in sanctification. As for 2 Corinthians 12.9, you have weaknesses, watch God work in your weaknesses as you recall principles and promises as found in Holy Writ. We have number seven. We have nine. So let me try to go through this. The importance of faith. Faith is essential in the process of sanctification as believers trust in God's promises and relay Rely on his grace to transform them. You find this especially in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by what? Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see that? The life that I live, the life which I now live in the flesh, in this body, I live by faith in who? The Son of God. And then Paul says, who loved me and gave himself for me. So he says, look, whatever I'm going through, I live in the flesh. Whatever I'm going through, I live by faith in God the Son, in the second person of the Trinity. And this person loved me And in fact, he gave himself for me. See that? That's faith. That is faith. Number eight, the role of the word. The role of the word of God. The word of God is instrumental in the process of sanctification as it serves as a guide for holy living and transformation. 
Believers are called to meditate on, apply the teachings of Scripture in their lives, allowing it to shape their thoughts, attitudes, and actions. You can't do that apart from the Word of God. You find, for example, Psalms 119.11, which we all have read numerous times. Notice what the psalmist says. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against who? You, Lord. This verse highlights the importance of internalizing God's word as a means of resisting sin and growing in sanctification. So one more. So you got the role of the word of God. And lastly, <coughs> you have the community of believers. That's you and me. The body of Christ, the church, plays a significant role in the process of sanctification as believers are called to encourage, exhort, hold one another accountable in their pursuit of holiness. <clears throat> Support for that is found in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to steer up love and good works. So the community of believers as found in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. So that is important. Every time I see you guys, there's a sense of uh, love, familiness. We get, I, I, I love seeing your faces. Hopefully you love seeing mine or at least like mine. So um, I enjoy seeing each and every one of you. That's part of the community of believers. I, I sit there and if I see that you don't look yourself... I automatically say, hey, what's going on? There's someone today that I saw that didn't look himself. I said, hey, what's going on here? That's what we do, community of believers. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. That's part and parcel of a community of believers. You can't do that when you're not together as a local church. You can't do that if you're apart from one another. So a local church should be prioritized. We should always... Um, prioritize the local church because the scripture says so. Do not forsake the assembling of saints. So when you see all this, you can see that your local church, our local church, is very, very key in sanctification. So that concludes this session, this class. So we will close in prayer. I think we have one more song. And then we'll we'll close in prayer first. And then we'll call it a day. This is where we will end. And we've got a few more things. We've got the rest of 1 Corinthians to cover and tackle. Father, thank you as always for being so kind and gracious to us. We are thankful, Lord, that we can always come to you regardless of what we have done. We know that it's all by grace. We know that your word is transformative. We know God the Holy Spirit is a person who is easily grieved because of sin. And so, Father, as we look closely into 1 Corinthians, I'm confident that we're going to see the principles and the commands as set forth in the Word of God, which is really for us as well, so that we can abide by the rules and the principles as found in 1 Corinthians, so that we can ultimately bring you honor and glory because you alone deserve it. We thank you, Father, for this time We ask that you would uh, go before us, keeping us all safe as we commute to our respective homes. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.